call of an elder, which has various roles, um, shepherding, leading, and teaching, but one of those roles is um, to feed the flock. I mean, the simple call of an elder, if you tried to take everything that uh, a man who's an under-shepherd in the church, underneath the authority of Jesus Christ, the head of the church, and say, how do you reduce it down to its component parts? It would be to feed and lead the flock of God. And we didn't make that up ourselves, write our own job description. It's really clear in the New Testament, whether it's in the words of the Apostle Paul giving a charge to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, or whether it's the words of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5 uh, to, sorry, that to shepherd the flock among you, whereas Paul's words to the elders in Ephesus um, to pay careful attention to the flock. And really, those words flowed from the most uh, simple command statement that Jesus gave to Peter at the end of the Gospel of John to what? Feed my sheep. Uh, that phrase landed afresh on my heart last week as Pastor Curtis opened up his sermon. And it was right at the top that he said, as elders, it's our joy to feed the sheep. And it's really our joy. There's no greater joy, kind of to echo the words of uh, John in, in 3 John 2, there's no greater joy than to see God's children walking in the truth and, and walking in the truth because they've been uh, led towards the truth and they have been fed God's truth. And yet while rejoicing in that statement that Curtis made last week, there was a bit of sorrow in my heart because um, as, pay, as I throughout the summer and throughout the entire year, pay attention to the church, not just our church, but uh, to the church, I guess you would say universal, mostly in the United States, having friends of mine, ministry partners, pastoring churches all over the place. I like to pay attention to what's going on in the church and uh, by way of the world wide web, the internet, you can pay attention for better or worse to a lot of things happening. And one Part of, I guess, my sorrow last week in hearing Curtis say that here it is our joy as elders to feed and lead this flock was, was seeing a troubling trend this past summer where um, feeding the flock of God, the Word of God, has been replaced with a fad diet. Preachers pretending they're feeding the sheep, but it's not a real meal, it's junk food. Curtis mentioned feeding the sheep here and immediately popped into my mind a, a quote I'd heard some time back, a time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, we'll have clowns entertaining the goats. Over the summer, I saw clips of churches copycatting a trend to replace the reading and explaining of the Bible with the watching and explaining of popular movies. And there were many examples of this over X, the social media formerly known as Twitter. All equally as foolish as they were cringeworthy, none more notable than Saddleback Church in Orange County, California, where the lead pastor and his wife came on stage dressed as Woody and Bo Peep and welcomed the congregation with this. You have shown up for a very special weekend at Saddleback, a four-part series called At the Movies, and this weekend we're going to look a little bit deeper at Toy Story which immediately just made me laugh for the simple fact, how do you look deeper at Toy Story? No offense, kids, or adults, I guess. If you have looked deeper at Toy Story, 
Email me later. We're going to look a little bit deeper at the story of Toy Story. Today, the message is all about the themes of Toy Story. And then you've got some notes you can track along there. I would love to see what some sermon notes to the movie Toy Story would look like. A special weekend, a four-part series, a deeper look at Toy Story. Take notes. Now, let me say this. That is not an attack on movies. So if you already were like, look at this fundy, you know, going off on watching movies here, that's not the point. The problem isn't with the movies. The problem is with the preaching. Um, if you want to talk movies, I'll exegete Jaws right now. <laughs> Best summer blockbuster ever. Man vs. Self, Chief Brody, afraid to go in the water. Man vs. Man, Quentin Hooper's ongoing battle. Man vs. Nature, ultimately. The shark. So there's your exegesis of Jaws today. So this was kind of swirling in my mind. Um, all the while I was engaged with a book that just recently came out called The Toxic War on Masculinity. Notice the play on the phrase. Um, it's not the toxic masculinity, it's the toxic war on masculinity. And it's written by an agnostic turned evangelical historian named Nancy Piercy. You may know her book, Total Truth. Uh, it was absorbing because it was a deep dive into, I guess what you would call it, the confluence of sociology, theology, and uh, history. As Piercy attempted to find out how did we arrive today in the culture and the church with a reputation that we have raised bad boys rather than good men. And in her book she brings out at the beginning a well-known statistic that the divorce rate in the church, and you've heard this one before, sits around 50%, which is the same as in society. And that's usually used as the secularist's checkmate to say... What good is it being a Christian and going to church if marriages end up in the same place as society? What Piercy uncovered in her research in this book was an important misleading element of that stat when she asked the question, just how devoted to the Christian faith are those who have divorced in the church? And what she found out was that there was a common factor in the churched people getting a divorce the 50%. Follow-up surveys showed that there was very little commitment to living out the Christian faith indeed, not just word, which would be the word we use for what? Nominal Christianity, in name only. She was able to point out in her research that when you take the 50% divorce rate and hold it up against a set of questions meant to distinguish between devoted followers and doers of the Christian faith against nominal Christians, then it went a level deeper with the statistics that you found out. And this shouldn't surprise any of us. Amongst those who took that survey, devoted followers of Christ with faithful church attendance, committed to serving, consistent life of Bible reading and prayer, generous giving and involvement, that divorce rate was much lower amongst the general church population. And then on the other side of it, amongst nominal believers, with few of those character qualities, the rate was much higher. Well, if you, if you take a very low rate and a very high rate, but call them all the church and put them together, you get what rate? 50%. So it made me think about that. Well, why, why is it that way? Why does it fall on the lines of devoted versus nominal? Could it be that, brace yourself, 
devoted followers of Jesus are actually real Christians. And in some cases, those devoted followers of Jesus can still end up in divorce. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But when those statistics were broken out, it seemed to show that those who bore the fruit of a New Testament Christian, that rate was much lower. The statistics lied. And those who just professed to be a Christian, filled it out on a survey, but had none of the fruits of that life, that rate was much higher. So it made me ask the question, as I've been sitting around doing nothing all summer, Vicki. <laughs> How might you get a church of nominal believers? Maybe one factor is when you exposit movies instead of the Bible. One factor. Just one symptom of the disease. When pastors forget they're called to edify the sheep and evangelize the lost and not entertain. If you don't actually feed the sheep you have, but try to entertain the goats you might have, you'll get the what? Tragic results of the modern statistics. And so you'll have what we see in the church at large today, a mixture of wheat and chaff, sheep and goats, devoted and nominal Christians. And I'm rather certain that Toy Story sermons won't solve it. So what will? Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30 today. The transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what will be the remedy to the problem. Preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified because nothing else but the gospel of Jesus Christ can change a life. Amen? And nothing else except for a changed life produces a changed church. And nothing else but a changed church will actually be what Jesus called us to be in Matthew 5.16, salt and light. A preserving element in a corrupted society, not a pacifying sugar. Sugar ever preserve anything? No. Rather, it leads to decay. Check my teeth. Don't check my teeth. So, that's what's been on my heart for the last month. You could thank Curtis for really setting it off last week, though. And so, before we get back into 1 Corinthians 12 this month and talk about being the body of Christ and using our giftedness, I want to spend one week just today, looking to Jesus Christ in Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. So follow along with me as I read. If you don't have a Bible, if you are a guest here, hopefully in the seat back in front of you, there might be a Bible for you to use to follow along as I read. Matthew eleven twenty-five to verse 30. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, 
and my burden is light. This is the living and active word of God. May it work to lighten the load on your and my soul this morning. This is a peak, if you want to call it, in the mountain range of the Gospels. If, if the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were the Appalachian mountains, this would be a Mount Mitchell moment. I'm not saying it's the only high point, but it's got to be up there. And so if you're new to the Bible and you have a copy in your hands, you can highlight this whole section. You need to know this whole section. It's rarefied air as the Son of God, Jesus, talks to His Father in those first three verses about God's sovereign plan of salvation. And then right after that, offers the call to come to Him and puts the responsibility on man to respond to that call. Right there next to each other, that that great contradiction, right? How can God be sovereign and we be responsible? Rather than us uh, take out the, the, the vast tomes of theology and try to explain it. And I love doing that. It's what you pay me for most of the week. But when it comes down to it, you take passages like this that have them right next to each other and you just take them at their word. God the Father's sovereign plan of salvation rejoiced in by His Son and yet turns and offers the good news to any near him that moment. There's sovereignty and responsibility right there by each other. And they don't seem to be in any sort of conflict. The white space is the same size there as it is anywhere else. This is a call to see Jesus as God and to see that he is good. This is about salvation. This is about the only solution there is to any problem that you might walk in here with today. The call to come to Him. And yet, you are going to get to see a peek behind the curtains, if you will, where Jesus prays to the Father. Knows things about God the Father that only God can know about God. Proving that He is God. And then in 28 to 30, see that he's not just God, but he's good. Because he calls you to come to him. So he could be both Lord and master of the entire cosmos. And yet he can call and come to you. An individual. To know your name and to tell you to come to him. And to trust him. And to walk with Him and to know Him all the days of your life. So let's look at that first truth we see in verses 25 to 27 of the good news of the gospel. And it is to know that Jesus is God. Verse 25, at that time. Matthew wanted you to see that phrase. He could have just started with Jesus said. But he wrote, at that time, he's trying to get you, as you listen to the story here in Jesus' life, that something particular is going on that is the uh, impetus or the cause for Jesus to stop in the middle of chapter 11 and what we will see that is going on there and have a prayer of praise to his Father in heaven. Now, if you just saw, I praise you, Father in heaven, you might think 
They might have already thought, things must be going really good right now for Jesus to stop and say, I praise you, Father in heaven. Except that's the entire opposite of what's happening right now in Matthew chapter 11. What's happening right now in Matthew chapter 11 is sort of a high point maybe for us reading because we're seeing all of the plan of salvation unfold. But in reality, a year and a half into Jesus' ministry, this was probably sometime in mid-AD 28, and he's been ministering since AD 27. He will be at the cross AD 30. So we're at maybe a halfway point in the life and ministry of Jesus, though not a halfway point in the gospel of Matthew. And though Jesus is known as a teacher... And his teaching has touched hearts with unrivaled authority. And though he is a miracle worker par excellence, no one can touch lives with his unequaled power. Here's the problem. And here's what makes that at that time important. He is still not known for the ultimate purpose of him coming to earth from heaven. He's not being celebrated at this moment. He's being rejected a year and a half in. Nobody's walking around celebrating that he's the long-awaited Messiah. Nobody is walking around confessing and calling all to confess that he is the eternal king of the universe. He is not being worshipped as God, very God, from heaven to earth. He's being rejected by the majority of the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and Pharisees. And he is being, you could call it warmly welcomed by the common folk, but that's just because they're fickle followers who are impressed by his powers. And they're impacted by his teaching, his words and works. And he is being followed around in Matthew 1 through 10 as if some pre-modern rock star. If you follow concert scene this summer, you'll know that the biggest show on earth right now is Taylor Swift. Some hundred plus concerts selling out worldwide. She might be set to eclipse, or I guess set a record never been done before, over a billion dollars. It's crazy to think, to watch a couple hours of performance. And why I bring that up is just to bring in from our modern context and walk back across the bridge to 8028 and say that same fervor of a, of a fickle crowd, I mean, I'm not saying you Swifties are fickle people, but... Um, you know, I don't know if you're going to devote your life, I hope not, to following every word and deed that Taylor Swift does. I mean, there's a limit to your fandom. And so it is with Christ that he could, he could command these crowds to hang on his every words and follow him everywhere he's going, but it's not hard to see why. He could cure every human disease. He could even raise the dead. He can stop the worst of natural disasters. He can cast out the most wicked of demons. Yet in all the work that he did, they were still missing out on his true identity. Who he was. The son of God. The anointed one. The greatest prophet. The greatest priest. The greatest king Israel would have ever known. They missed that he was the savior for sinners. The only redeemer. So 10 chapters into the Gospel of Matthew make it crystal clear who Jesus Christ was to us. But at that time in verse 25, it was not crystal clear to the people around him. And it may be because, just turn back one chapter to chapter 10. uh, Part of his message was starting to up the ante of what it meant to follow him. 
I mean, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the, great of his, the first of his great teachings in the Gospel of Matthew, sure, that, that, that had some challenges in it of what it would take to, to follow him to the end. And even as we sang this morning, to, he ends with saying, build your life on the solid rock of my words. But yet, he doesn't get into some of the statements here in chapter 10 that might have really caused people to second guess, am I going to follow this man to the end? Where he says in verse 37 of Matthew chapter 10, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Can you jive with that demand of Jesus? And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. This is what he demands of every one of his followers. There's no, there's no exceptions to this clause. So who has the right to require such absolute loyalty? And who can call for your devoted love more than a love you have for those you love the most? The only kind of person that could do that is one who's not merely a man, but actually God. And Jesus is God. And in the midst of being rejected by man, he shows this in his prayer that he is God and the things that he knows about God, his Father. So back to our text in verse 25, he begins in the midst of this time of of where people are walking away and he's pronouncing judgment on them in chapter 11, he can still start with praise to you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And he shows that he, though everyone around him is missing the point, he knows God's unmatched worth. That's something only God can know about God. Because fickle humanity... People that just want to be part of a crowd. As soon as they see the fanfare starting to die down, what do humans normally do just on on, on a regular level? They're not going to stick it out. We find somebody new. When the popularity of Taylor Swift wanes, she won't be selling out concerts around the world. She'll end up opening for the Hickory Crod ads. (laughs) If that happens in 10 years, I'm a prophet. (laughs) It's not going to happen. But this is, this is what is unique about Christ, and that word doesn't do it justice, that in this moment of rejection, chapter 11 in particular, he's not just being rejected by the crowds. Tragically, he's being questioned and doubted by who of all people? John the Baptist. That's how chapter 11 starts. John the Baptist, while in prison, is starting to doubt. Friends, John the Baptist loved Jesus but it didn't disqualify him from doubting Jesus. Doubt requires that you have somewhat pre-existent faith. You have something there. Unbelief is not the same as doubt, and we'll see this in chapter 11. You have unbelief in 20 to 24. Flat-out rejection, no interest. What John and his disciples were suffering with is a case of doubt. Is this really the Messiah? So his disciples come to Jesus and Jesus has to say, listen, blessed is you who does not take offense at me. I am the one that the Old Testament said, verse 5 of chapter 11. The blind are receiving the sight. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf are hearing. The dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to him. Yes, that's me. Go back and tell John that. 
And then he highlights John's ministry. John, a preacher of repentance, paving the way for the Messiah to come. And yet here's what chapter 11, right up into this point, boils down to. Whether you are a a, a doubter, one who sees uh, the life of Jesus and, and grows weak in faith, or whether you are one in unbelief, you're still missing Jesus in all of his glory. If you would just look with eyes of faith. And then he empathizes, I guess, if you want to call it that, with John's plight by using this picture analogy in, in verse 16 to 19. He says, what do I compare this fickle generation of doubters and unbelievers? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other kids. So imagine in the time of Jesus, some town square that later on in the evening might be the place where some of the elders of the city would gather. But during the daytime, it's, they don't have playgrounds at the time, Okay. So this is Hickory Town Square without that little playground down to the right of it. And, you know, nighttime comes and the show comes out. But during the day, kids could run around and play. And he says, you know what this generation is like? Missing out on who John the Baptist is and then missing out on who I am. First, they're the kids who call out to the other kids and, and they say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. Oh, that, that was what happened to John the Baptist. Verse 18, John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. He preached repentance. He lived out in the wild. He was unlike anyone they had ever seen or heard for hundreds of years. And yet in that solemn, sobering message uh, that Jesus would equate to a, like a funeral scene, then everybody says, no, oh, no, no, way too serious. Come on, John, lighten up. Give the people what they want. A happier message. A message of hope. Okay, Jesus comes along. We sang a dirge like a wedding, and yet you did not mourn. The Son of Man came eating and drinking and saying, what did they say about him? A gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What's he pulling out there? He's pulling out the simple fact that like fickle five-year-olds playing in a town square, nothing satisfies them. Let's play funeral. Let's be serious, not too serious. Let's play wedding, serious fun. No, too silly. The point that Jesus is highlighting in, in verses 16 to 19 is whether a funeral or a feast, unbelief won't respond to the call of the moment. You can never make somebody who's just following along in the crowd, as part of the crowd, but not there for the person. You'll never make them happy. Because one side's going to say, oh no, I'm not down with that. They're having way too much fun. Needs to be more serious. And then the other side says, oh man, they've got to lighten up. That John the Baptist, man, out in the wild, locusts and honey, calling, pronouncing judgment on everyone. You'll never make them happy. And Jesus says about this generation of rejectors, you're playing childish games. You reject serious John and you reject joyful Jesus. Why? Because like fickle little kids, stubborn defiance, foolish disinterest. You got any fickle little kids? I had one this morning while I'm trying to have quiet time. Comes down and wants milk. It's milk. And I'm like, cool, man, I'll get you some milk. And then as soon as I make it, oh, it's, I don't want it, it's too warm. Oh, okay, I'll get you some cool. I don't want it, it's too cool. And then starts crying. And I'm like, bro, you're faking it. There's nothing to cry about here. You want milk, you're going to drink milk. Guess where that goes? You didn't drink the milk. 
So there was my illustration today. It's, it's, Jesus is using this to show that the fickle nature of unbelief, you'll never please them. Because they don't really want what you're offering, Christ. If they did really want it, they would come and they would stay. But they're coming and going. And then, verses 20 to 24, this is really the, the low point for Jesus, and yet it sets up this high point of contrast that he would praise God at this moment as he begins to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. And so he pronounces judgment on all of these cities in the area of Galilee that he's been doing miracles in. And to really punctuate it, he says in verse 24, you know what? It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That is shocking. That should be shocking to our ears. Because if I said, put on the scales of um, what you know about Sodom and Gomorrah and what you know about Galilee in the time of Jesus, whose sins are more pronounced? Whose sins do we even today want to rail against more? Sins we know about in San Francisco or unbelief we don't know about in Hickory? Right? According to Jesus, what he's setting up here is, you know what's worse? Worse is unbelief because of the Savior you reject, not the sin you commit. Rejecting the Savior is what ultimately puts every single person in hell forever. And yet the religious people of Jesus' day, what? Man, there's some bad people out there. You know, they all live on the coasts. But here in the Bible Belt, we're good. This is a word for the religious to listen up. That amongst the religious people of Jesus' day, the sin of unbelief was going to be of greater judgment than the known sins of a place like Sodom. That should hit us heavy. How serious is unbelief? And what makes it even weightier is because he's saying, you saw it and you heard it and you, I was right here in your midst. As the unbelief is in the air, all this time Jesus could still turn to the Father and, and see past all of it. And praise him for one, because he knows God's unmatched worth. But well, look what else he does in verse 25. He's not just praising God, for he alone is worthy. But then he says, you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. He knows God's all-wise works. So it's not just he's just saying, you know what? When I'm having a down day, I just need to praise. He has a reason for his praise, and it's because God understands God's plan. That's what you see in verse 25. He could praise God for his unmatched worth, his Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Why? Because he knows God is up to the perfect plan. That the plan of salvation is not going to be able to be explained away by just pointing to people and saying, oh, those really intelligent people, uh, those people that knew the Old Testament the best, those people that kept the law the best, of course they were the ones that got saved. That's not his plan. That's not how the proud respond. The proud were the ones rejecting him. Who does he say receives him? You've revealed this wonderful, these hidden things. He's talking about the gospel. 
the offer of forgiveness. You've revealed them to infants. We already saw that this summer in Psalm 8, if you remember. That God could command praise from what? The least. Up against his detractors. It doesn't make a difference to God. Because it's the humble who are going to see a Savior and in their lowliness and in their humility receive Him. The wise, the intelligent, they're the rejectors. This is the same message that Paul preached in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. Consider your calling, brothers. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world. And the despised God has chosen the things that are not the stuff that we don't put a lot of stock in. The, the credentials that we might try to bring to the table to think that we will impress God. Paul is saying, and Jesus is saying, and Psalm 8 is saying, look, it's the same God all throughout. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's how his plan of salvation is going to work out down here. The base things of the world and the spies God has chosen, the things that are not, that he may nullify the things that are. Why? Is he trying to penalize people for being proud? It's a penalty unto itself. No, it's so no man may boast before God. If our salvation is truly going to be to the glory of God alone, then there's nothing that we can possibly bring. At the end, we would be able to stand up in heaven and say, it's because of me, it's because of this, it's because of what I did. And no, it's what we're saying this morning, what he's done. All the glory and the honor to the Son. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Jesus is boasting in the Lord right now. He's praising God the Father for this all-wise plan revealed to infants. No, 1,600 on the SATs, you just have to bow. And it's always been that way with God. And that's why the religious of Jesus' day missed it then, and that's why the religious of our day miss it now. Because there's an amount of self-righteousness inherent in religion that beckons to our prideful hearts to want to bring something, show something, perform something, rather than let it all be about what God has done. Because it's just counterintuitive to everything we're wired to do from the jump. We've got to earn. And in, in certain areas, that's normal. Talking to the 10U football team I'm coaching this year. I just told them, guys, you got to earn it. You're just not going to walk onto the field and start. Stop picking your nose, please. <laughs> it's really hard to like, give a commanding fire-up speech as a football coach to 10-year-olds at times. <laughs> but it's my lot. Salvation is Jesus is praising God for right here. And in verse 26, he's adding to it. <laughs> this was well-pleasing in your sight. Only Jesus could know this unknowable will of God. 
that salvation is all of God. And that's when we are hit square between the eyes with the true gospel message. It's that you must receive all of Christ or none of Him. All of His person or none of Him. All of His words or none of them. All of His work on your behalf or none of it. Or none of it. Because you'll stumble over your own self-righteous heart any other way. John Calvin called this our shadow righteousness. And that's a perfect picture. He writes about this passage. To avoid dwelling too long on this point, let us lay down a rule which, though brief, is universal and very sure. He who is utterly abased and who has put away, and I do not say his righteousness, which is nil, but the shadowy righteousness which deceives us all, only that person that's put away that shadowy righteousness, that facade, is properly prepared to receive the fruits of God's mercy. For the more we each rely on ourselves, the more we hinder the work of God's grace. Friend, that is how you come. Not relying on yourself. Otherwise, you hinder the work of God's grace. So Jesus is revealing that he is God and the things he can know about God's works and about God's will and his ways. Verse 26, only God can know about God the Father, that not just this was his work that he's seeing unfolding that he could praise God for, but verse 26, this is well-pleasing in the sight of God. It was according to God's good and perfect will. It, it, It shows that only Jesus knows the heart of the Father. No one else could know the heart of the Father. We don't even know our own hearts according to the Bible, let alone know God's heart. Ecclesiastes 9.3 says our hearts are full of evil and insanity. Jeremiah 9.9 says we can't even understand our heart. 1 Samuel 16.7 says only God can see what's happening in our hearts. And yet here, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, says to God the Father, I know your works, I know your ways, I even know your will, and I rejoice that salvation is nothing like what the world would devise. This is all just praise leading up to the point of verse 27, proving that Jesus is God, that he's equal with God. He has the authority of God. He not only knows God's worth and God's will and God's works and God's ways, but verse 27 shows that Jesus is God. Why? Because verse 27, all things have been given, handed over to me by my Father. And you see that phrase echoed throughout the life of Jesus. John John 3 The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The end of Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. Right here in the middle of Jesus' ministry, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. What is this doing? This is showing that the Son of God and the Father of God are one. They're equal. And because they're equal, no one knows the Son then except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And to anyone to whom the Son wheels wills to reveal him. Jesus is God. And if you know that much today, you're on the path to eternal life. I'm not saying right now you have to understand how verse 27 works. Because I've just been telling you about how damning unbelief is. Right? Did you catch that? If you're not in Christ today, How damning unbelief is for you. Without me mentioning even one sin that you could be guilty of this morning here. You're damned because of the fact of your unbelief. And that's the most serious indictment you could have against you. 
to reject Jesus as the Savior. And then I have the audacity to tell you in verse 27, wait, no one is going to know the Son except the Father, and no one's going to know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So at some point, are you pushing away and folding your arms and saying, I can't do anything about this? I don't think that's the end of the story, though. Because in the midst of such a statement of Jesus' absolute sovereignty over salvation, he says this to you. Come to me. Come to me. I'm God. I'm sovereign. I'm master. I'm Lord. No one will come to me unless the Father draws them. Unless the Father gives them. And He's given me that authority to reveal So come to me. If I hold all the cards, you have none to play. So come to me. That's what he calls on you to do today. If you don't know him as Savior and Lord. He doesn't call you to try to figure this out. But he does call you to respond to his invitation. He goes from just being, and I don't mean just being as that's a small thing, from being God. And you're saying, hey, there's a lot of gods out there. What should make me choose him other than his absolute authority over all things? The fact that he's a good God. That's where we turn the corner here in this passage that Jesus isn't just God, he is good. Because he invites. He calls you to come, verse 28. And there's only one prerequisite for you to come. You have to see yourself for who you really are, verse 28. It is a a call that all can come, but yet you have to properly see yourself as you've properly identified. Jesus is God and He is good. So I can come? Are you weary and heavy laden? That's how you can come. That is the prerequisite here. It's admit your weakness. It's admit your need. It's admit your hopelessness and helplessness without God saving you. That's who He calls to come. But yet some, back in chapter 11, like those children in the marketplace, are fickle and defiant and stubborn and just don't want to come because they don't want to come. Well, what's underneath that? They don't see what he is saying right here. If you can look at your life and say, I am weary. And he's not talking about general exhaustion here. That's common to man. This passage is set within what? The unbelief of self-made religion, of the self-righteous. What's the weariness of a self-righteous person? The never-ending hamster wheel of trying to please God in your own strength. You weary of that? No, I'll do it on my terms, God. I've been doing this since I was a young kid. I know how it's done. And I am sure that my performance is why I can come. And Jesus says, nope, I guess you're not a weary and heavy laden person, so you can't. That's why you can't come. You think it's still something about you and your performance and what you do. But this call to salvation says, you can come to me. 
But you have to admit you're weary and heavy laden. You're burdened is the word. And when you can admit that, when you can see yourself as a need to be saved, then you can come and be saved. Be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. That's admitting your weariness. That's admitting your heavy laden, your need, your burden. And then he says, I will give you rest. You didn't earn that rest. He graciously gives it. You have to see your burden for what it is, and your burden is your sin. It's what keeps you from God. And as much as you want relief of a burden for your rest, you just need to be reconciled to God through Christ. That's what really this this verse comes down to. Ronald read it earlier. Romans 5.1. He read Romans 5, starting in verse 6. But prior to that, to see what our greatest need is, our greatest need is to be reconciled to God. And once reconciled to God, then we can rest in Christ. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith. You know what that means? You've been reconciled to God. You're no longer a rebel. You're no longer his enemy. That's your greatest sickness as a sinner. It's your state of rebellion against God. And it says, having been justified, having been made right with God by faith, now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's another way to say what's happening in verse 28. Once you've been reconciled to God, you can find that rest that only Jesus brings. You can have peace with God. Are you reconciled to God? It only comes through abandoning all hope in yourself and coming by the call of His Son. It only comes... When you admit your true problem, you are weary and worn to exhaustion trying to be your own God. Do you want rest? Then verse 28 says, do you hear the voice of Christ call to you this morning to come to him? So first you have to admit your need. Look at verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He's good. I am gentle and humble in heart and that's how you'll find rest for your souls. Once you have abandoned all hope in yourself as a sinner in your own righteousness, then what are you left with? You're left with a new yoke. This idea of a yoke, it may be unfamiliar to our 2023 uh, mindset. It's, it's that you would see whether it would be two oxen or two horses uh, yoked up next to each other. And oftentimes uh, that piece of wood was shaped for the, the stronger of the two to bear the heavier burden. So what? It could carry along the weaker one until it got stronger. Until that weaker one was able to carry a yoke and that, pat, that, that cycle would continue. And Jesus has said, though I will give you rest, I will put a new yoke upon you. There is a new burden. You have to know what my burden it is and it is no burden whatsoever. Why? Because of who he is. Look at that. What kind of savior gives you a burden but then turns around and says, I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. It's a good savior. It's a good savior who says that. He invites you to his yoke. He invites you to to work with his strength. That starting at Calvary, he took the burden that you couldn't bear yourself. But when you've come to him in faith, if you're a Christian here today, you are now yoked up, if you will, with Christ. And you will find more rest for your soul in verse 29. As you walk along in your faith with Christ, as you grow in Christ, and you learn of him and from him, you find greater rest. It's forever. It's the rest of your life. It's not like you just become a Christian and you get perfect rest at that point. No, you can become like John the Baptist was, full with doubts. 
and needing to be called back to Christ, come close to Christ and learn of him again, learn from him again. Notice that little phrase there, learn from me. What's interesting, because you would expect after he would say, learn from me, that he would want to teach them a lesson. But then he says, I am gentle and humble in heart. So in an amazing way, Jesus is saying in this moment, I am both the teacher and I'm the content of the lesson. It's both who I am and what I do. And you come to me and you learn from me and you learn of me and you get all of that with me. And and if you know anything about discipleship, you know that following Christ is about learning from him, what he taught, what he said, but it's learning of him. Otherwise, where's the relationship? Discipleship, being a, a student of a rabbi back in the time of Jesus was walking alongside them, not just hearing what they taught, but what? Seeing how they lived. And this is your relationship with Jesus Christ to your dying day. It's not just information absorption. That's part of it. We need to learn this. But if you're a follower of Jesus, it's learning of Christ. And he says, here's the lesson I want you to never forget about me. That I'm gentle, that I'm meek, that I'm humble. And in me, you'll find that rest for your soul. He says, I've got a yoke, but it's not like one you're used to. It keeps you close to me. So you can learn from me as a teacher and learn of me as your model. I am the guide in your way, your all in all. So this isn't just to the unbeliever here this morning, but to the believer. Are you staying close to Christ so that you're continually learning that this is who he is? That you can always come back to him. He hasn't changed. He's the same, what, yesterday when you came to Christ. Today and forever. He won't change. Every, every time you sin, believer, It's not like you have to sit back and wonder before you come back to him. Will he receive me again this time? Is he the same savior as he was when you first came to Christ and called out to him as he is today? Has his character changed at all? No, he's still that same gentle and humble in heart savior to give you rest for your soul. And then verse 30, finally, he ends, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He, he, he highlights the fact that there is this yoke that you stay with him, but it's easy and it's light and you'll remain with him. It's a lifetime of following him. As one writer said, it's a yoke that's lined with his love. It's a yoke that is the joy of the liberated, not the burden of the obligated. And it's the yoke that when you mess up, your first response to Christ is not the self-righteous lie, I must do better. I hear that a lot in the culture today, and it makes me sad. You ever follow like a celebrity or an athlete who screws up, whose name's in the news? You could just hit replay on what they're going to say afterwards because they have to build their brand and they can't lose their sponsorship. What are they going to say? I must do better. I'm committed to doing better. And then months pass and they do the same thing, maybe even worse. That's self-righteousness at a cultural level, but you do it at a Christian level too. When after you screw up, that your first gut response is, you know what, I must do better. Rather than you first say, I know the one who did it perfect. Christ is my righteousness. He loved me and gave himself for me. And do I want to do better? Of course. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But that's the joy 
of obedience, out of a love for the Savior. Not, you know what, I let you down, Lord. I promise I won't let you down again. I'll do better. There's no gospel in that. For the Christian, that's been forgotten. That you come back to him the same way you first came to him, seeing him for who he is, the one who forgave your sins, when there was nothing in you worthy to be forgiven. That's why the gospel is good news to all of us. So my final question for all in here today is, no matter where you stand, have you replied to this invitation? Do you come charging to Christ this morning when he says, come to me again? John 6.35, come to me and never hunger. John 7.37, come to me and never again thirst. John 8.12, come to me and never again walk in darkness. John 11.25, come to me and never die. And in our passage, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Do you think he's trying to get a message across to you today? Come to him. You don't have to come down front to come to him. You don't have to actually move an inch. Your heart can call out to him from where you sit right now. One writer paraphrased verse 29. And I like this and I'll end with this. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That sounds good today, doesn't it? Keep company with Christ and learn to live with him freely because your chains have been, what? Removed. And lightly because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his goodness and kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, for every child of God in here, every one of my brothers and sisters who... When we come this morning, it's not because we have come to clean ourselves up. It's because we have come washed in the blood. And we know it is only His righteousness that accounts for anything to us. For those not in Christ this morning, Father, You can draw them. Bring them to Yourself as they hear the words of Christ to come. To admit their burden is too much for them to bear. And to lay it down and give it to Christ and take on His yoke learn from him that he is God and he is good and that they would cry out to you for salvation in this moment they would be born again that you would give them eternal life we praise you father for the work you do of salvation the work you've always done it's always of you God to be a saving God and we'll praise that forever Help us to remember that now as we turn our attention to remembering Christ and his work in the Lord's table. And may that lift our hearts this morning to greater praise, we ask in his name. Amen.